0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: At no point since he's been elected Prime Minister has his personal numbers been as low as they are now. You know, the Prime Minister needs to tell Canadians uh, why he wants to keep this job, why he wakes up every day, what's he fighting for. I think he's lost that.
2: It's not just pollsters like David Coletto who think the Prime Minister has a problem. Liberal MPs have been telling journalists their concerns about connecting with Canadians. There were even some whispers that the PM would have to shape up or go. I'm Catherine Cullen. This week on The House, we'll ask some Liberal MPs whether there's been a meaningful shift in their party's plans and whether Justin Trudeau is really listening to them. Also,
3: if you have a child that is looking to transition, looking to identify by a different name or pronoun, That parent is, I think, in the best position to help support that child.
2: What pronouns a student uses in school has become a very political issue. We'll look at why some politicians are embracing it and where this debate is headed. And Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, will join us as he prepares for world leaders to meet in New York next week. We'll talk about Canada's priorities in the face of an ever-growing list of international crises. But first, what do Justin Trudeau's own MPs make of their party's falling fortunes? The House is now in session. I want to start with a couple of quotes. If things don't change within four to six months, the Prime Minister will have to rethink whether he's the right leader for us. When the message doesn't resonate with the public, either the message has to change or the messenger. Those are remarks that Liberal MPs made on the condition their names not be used to our colleagues at Radio Canada before this week's caucus meeting. The Liberals are down in the polls and have been struggling to connect with Canadians on affordability and housing. So, did the Prime Minister get that message from his MPs? And did the closed-door caucus meeting fix anything? We've brought three MPs together to talk about it. Ariel Cayabaga is an Ontario MP representing the riding of London West, the city where the caucus meeting was held. Quebec's Anthony Housefather represents the riding of Mount Royal. And Cody Blois is a Nova Scotian representing the riding of King's Hance. I spoke with them on Friday before Hurricane Lee made landfall. Welcome to the House, everyone.
4: Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to be here.
2: So you folks cannot actually talk about what happened in those closed-door meetings. Of course, that is what we really want to know about. But I I will ask you this, and Anthony, I'll start with you. Do you feel that things will change coming out of this meeting?
1: I mean, I think that we already have a very cohesive caucus, and I think that we were already doing a pretty good job. But of course... We understand the fears and frustrations of Canadians. We're living in a difficult time across the world. And affordability and the need for housing are the two number one issues that we hear about constantly. And I think we used this caucus, meaning it was one of the best caucuses that I've been at in the seven years I've been an MP, to really talk about solutions to deal with affordability, which we all, I think, unanimously agreed was the number one issue for all of us.
2: Ariel, though, people are wondering, are, are things going to be different? The polls suggest that they don't feel the government's responding. Do you feel like something has changed this week?
4: I think that it's important that we talk about where Canadians' concerns are right now. So that's, like Anthony said, it's actually one of the best meetings that we've had where we're actually addressing the needs of Canadians and needs that, you know, yeah, we've been hearing at the doors that these are the things that people care about, but also some of us can also say these are the things that we got into politics to champion, and we're getting to work for Canadians. And polls, um, as you mentioned, are, are just, it's just politics. Right now, we're thinking about the future uh, for the next two years, how we can continue to address the most pressing needs for Canadians.
2: But, but Cody, you know, your colleagues talk about housing affordability. You would have told me that was a priority six months ago. Is anything going to be different after what happened behind those doors this week?
3: Well, Catherine, I think the media has focused a lot on the polling, and, and I'll build on what Ariel had said, which is, you know, those are just a snapshot in time. So, what I think the caucus brought to London was, of course, an emphasis that we can't be complacent. We have done a lot of really good programs. But politics is what have you done for me lately? And certainly I think the message that the caucus took to prime minister and cabinet was we really need to focus in on those key elements. You saw some of the initiatives that were announced in London. And I think there'll be more to come.
2: Okay, Ariel, I read those quotes a moment ago from MP suggesting that the prime minister needs to change or go are you surprised that some of your colleagues are that frustrated?
4: I I, I think, um, personally, I believe that we have time to work. Uh, we've been delivering for Canadians. And the focus right now should continue to be, what are the needs of Canadians? Canadians want to see more houses being built. They want to see their groceries be affordable. Yeah, I'm
2: going to jump in, though, Arielle. I- I'm sorry, because that wasn't the question. My question is whether or not you're surprised that some of your colleagues are that frustrated.
4: I'm surprised, yeah, because that's not the conversation I would say that focused on this weekend. I think this week we talked about the pressing needs for Canadians, the things that we're hearing at the doors, the things that we want to make sure that we're delivering for Canadians before the next election. And that's what we've been able to even announce coming out of this meeting. It's the focus on what are our constituents telling us and what did they send us to do in Ottawa? and that's. But
2: surely they're telling you that they're not satisfied right now. I know you don't want to talk about the polls, but if we just want to talk about the public mood, Surely they're telling you they're not
4: happy. Well, Canadians are talking about the things that are pressuring them. And it's, you know, if your pockets are pinching, you're going to be frustrated. Yes, I'm hearing that frustration. And that's the kind of conversation that we had this week with our colleagues to brainstorm on the things that we can do to continue to support Canadians.
2: Okay, Cody, the prime minister said going into these meetings that he was going to listen. Do you not always feel listened to?
3: Uh, no, I think we do feel listened to, Catherine. But what I would say is, without going into too much detail, as you talked about at the top, in terms of how the caucus operates, the way that this caucus was structured in London, I, and I want to give credit to the Prime Minister, and I want to give credit to Brenda Shanahan, who's our National Caucus Chair, the entire way that the caucus was structured, particularly on the first day was not the executive or cabinet speaking to what they feel the direction they have to go. It was an open forum for caucus to provide the feedback that they had heard that summer. Uh, The prime minister was in listening mode, and I think you're going to see that reflected in the government's actions in the days ahead.
2: Anthony Housefather, the caucus says its piece behind closed doors. We don't know exactly what happened. Of course, we have reports, uh, including from the CBC, that it was the conversations were blunt, they were frank. The Prime Minister comes out of the caucus meetings and announces a new slate of measures, going after grocery stores for high prices, removing GST uh, from the construction of new rental apartments. Can caucus take any credit for those changes in policy?
1: Uh, sure. I mean, I think most of our policies are developed from the bottom up. They're developed by caucus members talking to the relevant parliamentary secretaries and cabinet ministers going up to the prime minister. And we work together on issues like this. And when it comes to the issue of needing more homes and understanding that we need rental apartments across this country and incentivizing developers to now build when they're facing inflation in such a highway across the world, well, that certainly is a bottom up policy. So is the idea that We're very frustrated, just like Canadians are. The grocery prices keep going up and the profits for the largest grocery chains, uh, five of them make up 80% of the Canadian market, are astronomical. So I think those type of comments that we make, those type of suggestions we make, there were a lot of very concrete policy suggestions that were made throughout the two days of our caucus retreat. I think they will be more and more announcements that reflect what caucus is asking for.
2: Okay, Cody, I want to ask you, I mean, so we have these promises, grocery prices, housing, but in Atlantic Canada, people have seen a big jump in prices around uh, energy uh, with the consumer uh, carbon price and the clean fuel levy coming into effect this summer. What do you need from the government in order to sell those policies to your constituents?
3: Well, look, uh, we know in Atlantic Canada that sometimes around carbon in particular, we are a little bit more exposed. I'll give you an example here in my home province of Nova Scotia. Uh, The provincial government, for example, has a goal of getting our electricity generation off coal by 2030. That's a goal that we share federally. And those are things that we have to do to be able to try to help create a clean energy future for Atlantic Canada. So those are part of the things that I focus on. And I I know that the government is willing to move in that direction. Without sharing all the details, I know that the government is going to be engaging with Premier Higgs and Premier Houston on trying to find a pathway towards um, decarbonization of the electricity grid by 2030. Thirty-five and moving towards that direction. So those are examples where we can demonstrate is, working together.
2: Is that kind of thing going to take the the sting out for your constituents, though?
3: Look, I, I think my constituents understand the impacts on climate change. Catherine, I just lost sadly four constituents in July with flash flooding uh, that hadn't been seen in almost a hundred years. We have Hurricane Lee, as you mentioned, off the top that is on our shores, and we had the worst forest fires in the province's history. So people know the impacts of climate change. I think at the end of the day, it's trying to make sure that the policies that we put forward to fight climate change are gonna be able to help drive that conversation and make sure that we are being, I would say leading on this issue because that is one of the things that we ran on in 2015 was being serious on climate. And I think at the end of the day, whether I, I point to the heat pump program that we've put in place, Catherine, whether I point to other initiatives We are trying to walk a difficult balance that is not always easy between environment and affordability. And I I do think we're trying to find that pathway the best we can.
2: Okay, I want to bring Ariel in here on an affordability issue, because you said to a reporter this week that you haven't been able to buy a home. The Conservatives have turned this point into an attack, an online attack, that things are so bad right now that Trudeau's own MPs can't afford housing, at least one of them. Do they have a point, Ariel? I mean, that does seem like a, a concerning state
4: of affairs. Well, I can appreciate that um, Polyev cannot relate to the comments that I made and, and would use it as an attack ad because Polyev has been an MP since he was 25 on a full pension since he was 30. And he is a landlord. Uh, but these are not issues that are uh, not connected to like a lot of Canadians that are in my riding. I knocked doors in 2021 and this was a concern. I'm knocking doors now and this remains a concern. Not every young person has $100,000 in their bank account ready to put down for a down payment. And this is in part the taxation system that changed also in Ontario since 2018. I was a city councillor when Doug Ford removed rent caps and I think the GST is going to also help reduce that. We need more supply.
2: I hear what you're saying about things needing to change, but I just want to understand. I mean, you mentioned you were a London city councillor. Now you're an MP. Those are good jobs. If somebody with good, well-paying jobs that a lot of people would aspire to can't afford a home, what does that tell us about how tough things are right now?
4: I don't know where you live, Catherine, but in London, Ontario, city councillors don't make a lot of money. But I do know that an MP makes money. I- I'm privileged to make the 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 wage that I make today. I've been elected for two years. I've been a single mom. I came here as a refugee. I'm from a working class family. And this is the story of many Canadians. I do live in intergenerational home, just like many other Canadians as well. So I recognize my privilege. But when I tell you that my challenge is similar to many other... Canadians of my generation, many 30-year-olds, many young families who make good wages and are unable to buy a home. This is why the federal government actually has stepped up. Even here this week in London, we announced $74 million of partnership between our municipal government and the federal government to address this need. The GST is going to address this need. We've been chipping at it. There are partners that are not at the table, that are not helping to continue to address this issue. Who's Uh, not helping? I do think that the provincial government could do more. They could put caps on rent. They could step up and, and re- also remove the GST as we have done. We can continue to partner with everybody at the table to make sure that young people can afford the homes that they need and that they deserve to have.
2: Okay. I do want to get one last question into you, Anthony Housefather. Pierre Polyev if we don't want to talk about polls we can just say there seems to be some momentum in terms of the public opinion your party anthony housefather has not launched any attacks in response to that momentum should you
1: i uh, mean i mean i think tactically right what we need to do is deliver for canadians we need to have policies that canadians understand they can seize onto that they can have hope about so is that a no i don't i'm again, I I mean, for me, look, if you can look at my Twitter feed, you can look at my Facebook, you can look at my Instagram. I don't personally attack people. I believe in, I can criticize their ideas, but I don't vilify or attack people. So so again, my view is that however we deal with the conservatives, we're not going to win the election based on attacking and vilifying one person. People overestimate, I think, the importance of one person and a leader, when you're a party, is, is a vehicle and a team. The main thing for me is that we need to have effective policies that Canadians can seize on to and say, "The Liberals are people we trust to govern. We agree with them. We think they have a philosophy that is what Canada needs. And I believe that what our philosophy is is a mainstream centrist philosophy. It is not extreme, and it does not go out to stigmatize or vilify any individual groups in order to blame them for the ills that befall Canada. That's a very simplistic solution. It's one that a lot of politicians today are seizing upon, and it's not that that is what Canadians worry about on a day-to-day basis.
2: Okay, well, we are out of time for today, but I do want to thank you all for being with us. Thanks so much. Thank you
1: so much, thank Catherine.
2: You. Thanks for having us. Anthony father, Cody Blois, and Ariel Kayabaga.
4: But most important, most important is the parents'
0: rights. The parents' rights... To listen and make sure they are informed when their children make a decision. They you know, it's not up to the teachers. It's not up to the school boards to indoctrinate our, our kids. You know, it's the very-
2: Ontario Premier Doug Ford wading into questions around schools and transgender youth. It's a conversation that started in New Brunswick and it's been picked up in Saskatchewan, Manitoba and by both the Prime Minister and Conservative leader Pierre Polyev. So why have pronouns in schools become such a hot political topic and where is this debate headed? To help us make sense of it, we're going back to where it began. Jacques Poitras is the CBC's provincial affairs reporter in New Brunswick. Welcome back to the house, Jacques.
5: Always a pleasure, Catherine.
2: So there's been a lot of political turmoil in your province over this. Walk us through what's happened.
5: Yeah, in New Brunswick, it's been about a policy called Policy 713, which was designed to create a safe and inclusive learning environment for LGBTQ students. It was quietly adopted in 2020 by the New Brunswick Education Department, and it included a provision that if kids under 16 chose to adopt new names and pronouns in school, informally. They did not have to let their parents know, and the school had to come up with a plan to accommodate them within the classroom. And Premier Blaine Higgs now says he didn't learn of this until 2021, and even then didn't realize it would, in his words, direct elementary teachers to hide information from parents. So the government decided in the spring to remove that latitude from teachers and principals, and now they cannot respect the name and pronoun choice of kids under 16 without consulting parents. This is Blaine Higgs' the premier, back in June, explaining his thinking. My position as a grandfather and as a father is that I think that that kids in especially these vulnerable years in elementary school years, uh, you know, are, are, let's say, you know, toddlers being being exposed to, well, I may not be a boy or girl. Um, that That is uh, the role that parents need to play a role. Those are very formative years.
2: Jacques, I was hosting The Current this summer and I spoke to the parent of a trans student, who doesn't agree with this idea that parents need to know what's going on? Here's a bit of my conversation with Sean Rouse.
6: My own child talked to their friends and uh, other trusted people uh, before they came out to us, and uh, I think that's normal.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: And I think uh, prescribing, you know, that they must come out to the parents and they can't do any social transitioning with their friends and at school uh, before they tell their parents is uh, something that's going to keep kids in the closet. And when they're
2: in the closet, they're suffering. But what about in the political sphere? What's the pushback been to Higgs's change?
5: Well, there's been tremendous pushback. New Brunswick's child and youth advocate, he's an independent officer of the legislature, Kelly Lamrock, has come out strongly against Higgs's changes. He argues they violate equality provisions of the Charter of Rights, as well as the New Brunswick Human Rights Act and the Provincial Education Act, because, he says, this requirement of parental notification is specifically aimed at trans youth.
6: You can't say we need rules for that for students wrestling with gender identity but not for any other personal issue. What, what about straight students who might be dating or sexually active? What about if a student whose parents are devout Muslim decides she doesn't want to wear the hijab at school even though her parents wish she would? What if a child with a ethnic background decides they like a nickname that sounds more North American even though their parents wish they wouldn't for cultural reasons? What are the rules on all that? Well, if you have a different set of rules for trans students, even compared to other equally personal issues that parents might want to know about, that's prima facie discrimination.
2: We're trying to understand the politics at play here, Jacques. So tell me, I'm really curious, what impact has this had on the Higgs government? Quite an
5: impact, but in a way not at all. There was an assumption this would be a political disaster for Blaine Higgs, but it hasn't really turned out that way. In polling on voter intention, it's been pretty steady. Uh, The PCs have been in a statistical tie with the opposition Liberals. Dissatisfaction with the Premier is high, but that was the case before this all blew up. And because of vote efficiency, the way things work in New Brunswick, the PCs would probably win another majority even if they had a tie in the popular vote, With the Liberals. And in fact, when Higgs threatened in June to call an early election over this, the opposition Liberals, you know, did not call on him to do it. Next election is about a year away, by the way. There were also a lot of assumptions that this was a deliberate strategy by Higgs to mobilize his base. But it's pretty clear from many interviews he's given that he really believes in this. It's sincere. Uh, Some polling nationally has indicated majority support for the idea that parents have a right to know. But those polls have been criticized for not really framing the questions to ask, you know, whether respondents would support that idea if some children would be put at risk if their parents knew. The issue has also been a catalyst within New Brunswick's PC party for a caucus revolt and a push for a leadership review. Two cabinet ministers quit in the wake of this uh, debate in the legislature in June. Two were shuffled to the back benches. All four of them had voted for an opposition motion on this issue. Uh, But the review push within the party grassroots has kind of fizzled. So it's apparent that it's not really sufficiently galvanizing for PC party members to put Higgs's position as leader in doubt.
2: This question of uh, trans students in schools, the pronouns that they use, it's come up in other provinces. But even when the debate was starting in New Brunswick, you were hearing from people who said, this is going to get picked up across the country. Tell me about that prediction.
5: For sure. Well, several national groups uh, have mobilized to support Higgs. For My Canada, which is a Christian organization, and Right Now, which describes itself as a conservative group, both said they would encourage people to sign up as New Brunswick PC Party members to support Higgs if a leadership review vote happened. There's another group called Action for Canada. They organized an email writing campaign to New Brunswick members of the legislature. And I spoke to Tanya Gomes. from Action for Canada in the spring. And if you listen, you'll hear that this movement has taken its cues from the U.S. culture wars and also that they saw this decision by Higgs as a test case nationally.
6: Provinces across the country are paying attention to what's going on in New Brunswick because this, these decisions will affect the rest of the country. I know that there are those within this community that, uh, you know, have seen what's happened in Florida, how that got started, where they were really taking tangible steps to protect the rights of parents and to protect children. And then other states began to pass legislation in order to protect children as well.
5: Are the changes they made in Policy 713 the other day enough in your mind?
6: No, I believe that this program needs to be eradicated from the school system nationwide.
2: Well, and we are seeing that this is getting picked up across the country. In August, the Manitoba Premier said she would make a similar move if she wins the next election. Saskatchewan has introduced a similar policy. And as we heard a few minutes ago, Ontario's Premier has now weighed in too. Why do you think this is being embraced by other provincial leaders, Jacques?
5: Well, one thing we know is these premiers have seen Blaine Higgs do all this and survive politically at, you know, relatively low political cost. And in each of these three other provinces, there were arguably, uh, you know, very current political impetus for this kind of thing. In Saskatchewan, a right-wing party, Saskatchewan United, came second in a rural by-election in August after a controversy in that writing, in a school in that writing, about sexual education materials. And these materials were deemed too explicit by the province's education minister. And here's what Premier Scott Moe had to say the day after that by-election result
4: with respect to the materials that were introduced into a, a classroom in Lumsden. That most certainly was uh, uh, an issue that we heard of in the, in the Lumsden-Morris by-election. We heard about it in the Regina by-election as well, quite frankly. Um, and so we need to uh, listen to the message that has been sent on all sides of the political spectrum in these by-elections, and we intend to do so.
5: And the Mo government has since announced several changes, including a requirement that parents be notified if students under 16 want to adopt a new name and pronoun. So very close to the the Higgs change here. In Manitoba, as you mentioned, there's an election. And heading into that election, it looked like the incumbent PC government was in trouble, Uh, might have been looking for ways to drive their vote. And of course, in Ontario, the Greenbelt scandal was the story in August. And what premier wouldn't want to change the subject with that going on?
2: And Jacques, federal politicians are really getting involved in this, too. Uh, let's listen to, first, what the Prime Minister had to say earlier this summer, where he really took a shot at Higgs. Right now, trans kids
6: in New Brunswick are being told they don't have the right to be their true selves, that they need to ask permission. Well, trans kids need to feel
2: safe, not targeted by politicians. And Pierre Polyev had something to say about that while he was visiting New Brunswick earlier this summer. Look, uh, this
1: is a provincial policy. I know that Justin Trudeau has butted into that. The prime minister has no business in decisions that should rest with provinces and parents. So my message to Justin Trudeau is butt out and let provinces run schools and let parents raise kids.
2: Why do you think they're getting mixed up in this, shock?
5: Well, it's obviously seized the public's imagination and, uh, you know, it's in some cases it's reporters who are asking them about it (laughs) to comment. But, uh, you know, the Prime Minister was at a lot of Pride events this summer. It's an obvious thing to talk about. It was hard to ignore for him, I would say.
2: It is interesting when you look at the conservative side of the equation. I was at the convention last week in Quebec City and the members actually passed a policy resolution that does deal with trans youth. But it's pretty different from keeping parents in the loop the members of the Conservative Party are proposing a ban on medicinal and surgical interventions for anyone under the age of 18 who's experiencing gender dysphoria. So I think it is important to make that point that the sort of parental rights argument is quite different from something saying that no youth with a parent's consent can do another thing. Now, Pierre Polyev hasn't signed on to that, but it does suggest that this is a topic that political parties are going to keep coming back to? Where do you think this all goes?
5: One thing that'll be interesting to watch is the Manitoba election result. That campaign's underway now and that outcome will determine whether Heather Stephenson goes ahead with what she's talking about in that province. In New Brunswick, we've gotten into a thorny issue with governance and school boards. The school boards are basically saying they're not going to Implement what Blaine Higgs has changed. The child and youth advocate said they have a legal obligation to ignore those changes and protect the rights of children. Higgs actually had a bill before the legislature in the spring that would have stripped the the powers of some of those boards. And he pulled it in part because of that caucus revolt that was going on the very same week there was going to be a vote. So we'll all be watching here to see if he brings that back and where that takes the dispute with the school boards. And then just uh, in the last few days, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association has gone to court with an application for judicial review asking a judge to essentially quash the Higgs changes and declare them unconstitutional under the Charter's equality provisions.
2: The the Charter there reference is so interesting to me because, of course, and I don't know if everybody's seen this, but there was a video where the Prime Minister was recorded speaking at a Calgary mosque earlier this summer, and he talked about the Muslim community and some of the concerns that some of the people in the mosque were bringing to him about uh, LGBTQ education curriculums in schools, saying, you know, some of what's out there is misinformation, is what the Prime Minister says in this video. But also that the Charter of Rights, in his words, not a buffet, that if you want your rights protected, we're protecting other people's rights. Um, So the prime minister is leaning on the charter portion of this as well.
5: For sure. And the federal conservatives are clearly hoping to make some gains among certain cultural communities that may have socially conservative perspectives on this issue. So there's a lot of politicking in both directions on it. And then in Saskatchewan, there's also... A legal challenge brewing, and there Scott Moe, the premier, has said he'll use the notwithstanding clause to kind of charter proof uh, what he's done. Uh, Next week, we're going to see to what extent a one million march for children supporting these restrictions, how that goes. I mean, people are are planning to rally. We don't know what the turnout will be, but the debate's clearly not over. It's clearly going to continue on several provincial fronts.
2: Yeah, and a lot of passion on all sides. Listen, Jock, thank you so much for laying all this out for us. Thank you. That was CBC Provincial Affairs reporter Jacques Poitras. Lots more coming up on the House podcast, including Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, on the catastrophic flooding in Libya and what Canada's moral responsibility is to a country we once bombed as part of a NATO mission. That is just ahead. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to Canada's most popular political affairs program. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Let us know what you think about what you hear. Send us an email, thehouse@cbc.ca. Today is the 30th anniversary of the culmination of a Canadian military campaign you may never have heard of. But while the battle of Medak Pocket has been largely forgotten... What happened near the small village in the former Yugoslavia had a major impact on many Canadian soldiers. That includes the country's top military commander. We're going to hear from him in a moment. But first, historian Andrew Birch of the Canadian War Museum.
6: It's part of our military history. It's a chapter in our military history that is important. It's not Vimy Ridge. It's not, uh, uh, you know, the Battle of Hill 355. It's not Normandy. But the demand of the United Nations at that moment was not to buckle, and it didn't.
2: It was the Canadians' job, as part of the UN mission, to enforce a ceasefire agreement. But this was a peacekeeping mission with little peace to keep. The Canadians were held up at a heavily fortified Croatian roadblock outside Medak. Finally, on September 16, 1993, Canadian Blue Berets entered a Serbian village that had been set on fire with evidence of ethnic cleansing. General Wayne Eyre is now the Chief of the Defence Staff. Back then, he led the reconnaissance unit that uncovered and documented the massacre of civilians. He has never spoken publicly about what he saw at Madak until now. Here is General Eyre's story in his own words. And a warning, this does contain references to war crimes.
6: We were the first ones that arrived up to reinforce uh, the platoon from Charlie Company that was in the village of Madak. And over the course of the next few days, the, uh, the situation rapidly evolved. We, we conducted scouting missions, we received a number of be prepared to tasks, you know, whether it was to take over the front line positions in a certain area because we were being reinforced by French companies, they hadn't arrived yet, uh, to establish observation posts and to get a, a pretty good sense of what was happening. You know, the uh, the big firefight uh, that happened with Charlie Company and, and Croatian forces on the 15th. We were all in and around that as, as that was uh, unfolding. Let me just say on the 16th was probably the major day of operation and a day that is seared into my memory. As, as the, the agreement was starting to come into force the, the famous interview that our commander, our battalion commander, gave about the intransigence of, of one side to let us through to push forward and carry on with the agreement. The
3: Croatians made a big show of moving the mines and the anti tank uh, barriers, but now they are refusing to allow us passage, indicating that yet one more army commander and another army commander must be here to help guide us into position. At some stage, you got to cut the bullshit and get on with the job. And all I've heard right now from the Croatian people at my level here is a bunch of half-baked excuses aimed at delaying us from getting on with the operation.
6: But later that day, we had moved forward to a Croatian roadblock and we could hear the shooting, we could hear the, the burning, and we reported back that we believed that ethnic cleansing was uh, was happening. And finally about 1800 that night, after you know some time of making reports, we... We got the word and we moved through the roadblock. I tell you, it was a pretty scary time. Uh, issued anticipatory fire control orders because we figured we we're going into a fight. And we rolled into the village of Lickie Sidluck, w- which was the largest village in the pocket. And I'll tell you, every building in that village was on fire. The smoke, the flames is something I will never forget. Littered on the ground were hundreds of pairs of surgical gloves that had been used as they got rid of the evidence of the, uh, of the dead bodies. But we got there before all the evidence had been re- removed. And over the course of the next number of hours, we discovered a number of bodies and the like. But I tell you, the, uh, the smell, um, the smell is something that it took me years to, uh, to, to move away from. Every time I would smell a a wood fire, a campfire, it would take me back immediately uh, to that, uh, that scene and what was happening there. I have to say though, despite being surrounded by death, and it's a bit paradoxical, I have never felt so alive because our platoon reacted just exactly the way we trained and it speaks to the importance of training the years that we had put into training during the cold war in uh, in wainwright the years of preparation for a war that thankfully never came the soldiers and ncos of that platoon i could never be more proud uh with the with their actions um we had a number of incidents uh you know one in particular i remember is having to uh, escort the film footage uh, that our battalion commander had taken you know, a number of, uh, of bodies of young Serbs, young Serb uh, uh, women that had been burned, and three Serb soldiers that came in and basically surrendered to us as we moved into this village.
2: Hey. Hey,
0: the
6: and escorting uh, that package back to Canadian lines as we were going through uh, an area that we were very, very unsure of. As darkness fell, as, uh, as the threat of mines was very, very high, as we could still hear firing uh, happening in the, uh, the woods off around us and leading a small convoy through as we took that, that package and linking up with, uh, with Delta Company. Yeah, never forget that relief of, of linking up after that uh, very, very hairy um, journey of, it was, it was maybe an hour, uh, maybe an hour and a half, but it seemed like it was forever. The lessons of, of Madak have been formative for me. Much of the advice that I give now, much of the thinking about sending our soldiers into harm's way is based on my experience from that incident. You know, I also think that that, that battle was the death of traditional uh, peacekeeping. You know, it's interesting, three years before, with that same battalion, 2PPCLI, we were with United Nations forces in Cyprus, so traditional interpositional peacekeeping. You know, fast forward three years, same group, almost the same group of, uh, of NCOs, many of the officers had changed, but many of the same soldiers, and we were still in blue berets, blue helmets, white vehicles, but we were fighting. Um, and it was, it was a fight. Over the course of the next few days, uh, we were involved in, in numerous sweeps to locate evidence of atrocities. We uncovered a, a number of bodies. Um, how did I come to terms with it personally? Uh, it was a lot of reflection, um, a lot of uh, thinking deeply about it. And you could argue that, uh, you know, I, I'm still in the process of coming to uh, to terms with it because you know, coming to terms with a traumatic um, event like that is a process and uh, you know, from time to time I think deeply about it and you could argue and I would say it's the same for many veterans it's it's seared into your existence it's seared into your memory and so you will continue to think about it for the rest of your of your life and you ask yourself the what if questions you know what if this happened what if that happened because you're so hyped up when you go into a situation like that that it is uh, it's burned into your memory and everybody's experience in, in the former Yugoslavia was different, and you know, depending where you were stationed, you would have seen atrocities being uh, committed by, by the multitude of different groups that were involved in that conflict. But for me, one of the lessons is that civilization is a very thin veneer that could be readily ripped away. And in this case, we saw neighbors killing neighbors. It was, uh, it was very, very sad to see, but it speaks to the naivety that we have here in our country. Uh, We should be thankful for what we have. Canada is so secure and insular, and we've taken that for granted for for many, many years. And we take a look at other parts of the world. We see the atrocities that have happened in Ukraine, uh, where that veneer of civilization was rapidly ripped off as we've seen the brutal war crimes committed by the Russians. As we look forward and the world becomes increasingly dangerous, you know, we in Canada need to become much more attuned to the security threats that are out there.
2: That's Canada's top soldier, Wayne Ayer, speaking to the CBC's Murray Brewster. Another conflict Canada's military was involved in was NATO's intervention in Libya in 2011. Now, after more than a decade of fighting and political strife in that country, Libya has been hit by disaster. A massive storm led to two dams bursting, thousands are dead, and there are fears the death toll could climb as high as 20,000. What role could and should Canada play in helping. Bob Ray is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador Ray, welcome back to the House.
0: Thank you very much. Good to be with you.
2: Glad to have your time today, sir. Starting in Libya, we're still learning what happened, but what is your sense of how much this tragedy is about the, the systems and the the state failing its people?
0: Well, I think, I think it has a lot to do with it, but it's not unique to Libya. The fact is, is that the impact of major storms, major flooding, major fires, such as we've seen in Canada and elsewhere, uh, has an incredibly uneven impact in the world because countries are at different levels of resilience, ability to respond quickly, having systems of emergency relief, and having great infrastructure that is able to withstand the impact of, of climate change. So, Libya's uh, problems and challenges are the product of many things. Systematic underinvestment uh, from a country that uh, for a long time had a steady source of revenue from, uh, from fossil fuels, from oil and gas, but did not always put those to the best of use and did not build up a strong infrastructure that would be needed to protect uh, the cities that have been impacted by the storms. So this is a growing reality around the world. What's happened in Libya came as I think a major shock to people, uh, even the fact that for a long time we didn't know how many, how, we still don't know how exactly how many people have been killed and it's difficult to get supplies and difficult to get people into the region quickly enough to be able to respond and, uh, and be of assistance where it's, where it's required. We all see the impacts of this. We're going to see much more of it globally. This is, this is not a one-off. This, this, is our, this is our present, and it's our future.
2: I mean, that's very striking and, and obviously deeply concerning. You talk about how it's impacting the response as well. This is a country with essentially two rival governments. How will that affect the ability to, to cope and to manage in the coming weeks and months, do you think?
0: Well, it it, will, it doesn't help, but it's not insurmountable. The fact is the UN agencies and all of the relief organizations have a lot of experience in dealing with very, very difficult situations. And this will require uh, a significant response from neighboring countries and from the UN system, and that, that will happen. But my point that, that I'm trying to make is Although I know this doesn't necessarily fit in well with people's, you know, the need to respond to the news as the news happens, is that this is happening everywhere, and you, we must stop seeing these as sort of one-off events to which we have to respond, and then saying who's responsible and pointing fingers in different directions, and saying no, it, it, this reflects the weakening state of the global infrastructure in the face of unprecedented climate change and unprecedented severity of storms and events. And this, as I said, it's it's this is not going to go away. This is this is it, folks. What we've seen this summer is the new pattern, if, if you like, the new normal, but it's the new reality that we're facing.
2: So that's what we say. That's what you're saying we need to say about what we're looking at. What is the most pressing thing we need to do? Because that's a grim picture, obviously.
0: Well, we need to do many things. Well, first of all, we have to deal with the most urgent issues that are affecting Libya as, as well as Morocco and other places where disasters are happening. We have to make sure that the, the international response is funded, that we are responding flexibly and quickly to what's required. And again, that is not easy in the face of governments right across the West uh, in the advanced economies. Uh, looking saying well you know there's a limit to how much we can do and this is a little bit out of the range of what we thought we might have to face and I, I do think we have to bring the realities of the global community into into <laughs> make that much more of a driver of how we respond
2: I want to talk specifically about Canada and Libya Canada was among the NATO countries that participated in this uh, air mission over Libya to try to help topple Gaddafi, what is Canada's moral responsibility to this country in this time of crisis?
0: I think it's a responsibility that we all share. Let's let's remember the the, the facts. I mean, we had an extraordinary degree of repression, oppression uh, by the Gaddafi regime. You had strong requests from civil society in Libya for us to be able to respond to that. Governments decided to join in that response. I think if you're trying to draw a line between uh, what happened 10 years ago and what's happening today, it's it's not a straight line. The underinvestment in infrastructure did not start 10 years ago. It was a feature of Gaddafi's regime. There were parts of the country that he would pay attention to and parts of the country that but, he would but not. But, sir,
2: I, I'm, I'm interested in the, the – the I mean the military involvement. Does it not carry with it a kind of moral weight? Do we have an ongoing obligation to countries?
0: I think we have an ongoing obligation to countries. I've been very clear about that. We have a responsibility to protect. We have a responsibility to respond. And I've, at the United Nations and elsewhere, I've been a very, very, very strong advocate of the need for us to express international solidarity. But it doesn't, we don't say, well, we have a special responsibility for one part of the world as opposed to another. We have a special responsibility in Haiti where there's a serious crisis going on. And where there's now a growing call from Haitian society for there to be a stronger response on the security side. The prime minister is going to be coming down to New York this week and discussing with, um, we are calling the meeting. Canada's stepping up and saying, "Let's, let's pull together and see what more we can do. Canada's already doing things, but there's more that's going to have to be done. That's just one example.
2: I very much want to talk about the UN General Assembly, but I, I do just want to take a moment to speak about Morocco as well. It is dealing with a crisis of its own. Canada has many ties to Morocco, uh, but that country is refusing on-the-ground help from most nations, including ours. Does that resistance surprise you?
0: Well, there there are many countries would say, but please let us deal with it first and let let us deal with it on our own. I mean, I think we have to do everything we can to encourage the moroccan authorities that it's it's always a good idea to to draw in as much help as you can uh, there's no no effort on anybody's part to to interfere all we want to do is make sure that uh, all the humanitarian assistance to morocco that that can be given is being given and that's something that clearly we have an obligation an obligation to do the evidence is if you take for example the the terrible typhoon that hit myanmar 15 years ago, that was a situation where the government absolutely refused to accept any outside assistance. That was the, the most extreme example. Well, we, we know now that well over 100,000 people were killed. And one of the things that has created the modern chaos that is, that is Myanmar was the refusal of the regime to, to really embrace the need for a strong humanitarian response. The Moroccans are not in that, are not in that situation, but they, they will, I'm quite confident. Where they see a need, where they see that there's additional help that they need, I'm sure they will respond in a positive way.
2: Okay. Now, as the world comes together next week, uh, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau for the United Nations General Assembly in New York, I'm thinking about all of the issues on the global agenda. I mean, the crises we just talked about, Russia's ongoing war on Ukraine the Taliban's oppression of women in Afghanistan, coups in several African countries, not to mention Haiti. What is it that Canada needs to focus on in the midst of all that turmoil?
0: Well, I think, first of all, we need to understand that this is just a week in the life of the world. It's not, it's not the place where everything gets settled. It's a place where things get discussed. Hopefully, some momentum can be created for stronger solidarity uh, the Secretary General has a phrase which I borrowed and because I, I think it's a good one. And that is, in the current circumstances, on climate change, on the level of conflict, on the pandemic responses, solidarity is not a luxury. Solidarity is necessity because we simply cannot resolve these issues by ourselves. So my f- f- response to you would be to say, Canada needs to be part of a much more joined up response. It, it's not about Canada saying this is, you know, we can bring this unique thing to the table. No, what we bring to the table is has to be engagement, a willingness to really listen carefully to what's being said and how can we be constructive partners with everybody else in trying to uh, make sure the global responses to these crises are are more, more effective than than they have been so far. And that's that's what we can do. And that's, I'm quite confident that's what we will do.
2: We appreciate your time today, Ambassador. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Good to talk to you.
2: Glad to have you. Bob Ray is Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. That is it for us this week. Our crew on the House is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Paz-Lang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening.